Listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Julie McCrossan, a broadcaster and cancer ambassador. In this episode, Julie reflects on her studies in arts, education, and law, and experiences working in educational theatre with disadvantaged and isolated schools. Julie also reflects on her role as a national radio broadcaster, that is, talking for a living, getting other people talking and helping them to discuss a range of important and complex topics. We also chat about Julie's experiences as a cancer patient and how her instinctive and self-directed response to a persistent sore throat led to a visit to an ear, nose and throat specialist with a diagnosis and treatment of stage four HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer that is, tonsils, tongue and throat, about 10 years ago. Julie offers insights into the diagnosis, treatment and recovery from cancer, including the psychological impacts, side effects and the significance of social support. We discuss the impact of human connection with friends, family, fellow patients and medical practitioners and the profound human energy that's unleashed when a few people gather for a common purpose, such as when support group members meet. Julie also shares insights into health literacy, her role as a cancer ambassador, and her collaborations with medical practitioners. We explore the value of personal stories and their role in illustrating lived experiences, educating the public and improving healthcare systems. Finally, Julie offers very practical advice related to trusting your instincts, getting a second opinion and following up with reliable information online. Julie offers comfort, optimism, hope and empathy. Here's my conversation with Julie McCrossan. Well, here we are, Julie. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Now, um, I know I we were chatting earlier, but I would like to spend the next few minutes getting up to speed with what, who you are, where, where have you come from, what were you interested in as a younger person, were you good at school, maybe, or you know those sort of? Um, and it doesn't matter. It's quite alright if you weren't. But what what sort of things were you interested in when you were growing up? And you know, have you done study or? Yes, oh, a little bit of background. I, it's funny. Um, I I don't know about you, but I, I divide life now into B, B, C, and A, C. You know, before cancer and after cancer. So because that was such a life changing thing. But if I go back to my childhood, um. Oh, you know, I'm one of five children. Um, both my parents were uh, in uniform in the Second World War, uh, and that's hugely shaped my life and even shaped how I coped with the experience of radiation therapy for head and neck cancer when we get to that part of the story, oddly enough. But my mother was um, is a Londoner and uh, grew up uh, uh, was in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in the Second World War, um, 
her father was in the First World War. Her mother was a, an ambulance driver in the London Blitz with an all-woman crew. My father was an Australian um, who went over and joined Bomber Command, and they he was a pilot flying those big bombers that went out from Britain to smash Germany and other parts of the Nazi-occupied area. And um, uh, uh, mum and dad married straight after the war and she came out as a war bride and they had children uh, uh, quite rapidly, five children. Um, and both my parents came from working-class backgrounds, uh, but they were very, very focused on us having an education. And all five uh, all five children, my two big brothers, my two little sisters, were all university graduates. And now as a, a stepmother and a, a relatively recent grandmother, I really realised what an extraordinary achievement that was for both of them, particularly after the war experience. Um, but uh, my dad be, uh, got a scholarship to go to Sydney Uni and he became a dentist and then an orthodontist. Um, uh, both my brothers are medical specialists um, and my two sisters, one is in business and one is a physics teacher. And my background was uh, originally arts law. I went to university in 72 and it was a very, very wild left-wing activist period with gay liberation, women's liberation, a land rights, very much an activist, which was uh, incredibly educational, but which disrupted my education. But so in a nutshell, because I'm nearly 69 now, so I'm talking about the past, I got an arts degree and a primary dip ed uh, because I loved children and then very quickly got a job in a children's theatre company. So the first nine years of my life were travelling in a big Toyota coaster full of entertainers and clowns, um, mainly to disadvantaged schools and isolated rural schools in South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, a little bit of Queensland, funded under the Whitlam regime, as we remember that that groundbreaking Labor government, uh, uh, which was very supportive of what they called theatre in education. And after that, I joined uh, the ABC and had a long career on mainly radio and some television. But again, I see it as education, like it was children's education and the kind of ABC radio work I did was very much adult education. And uh, I've had jobs in and out of the media, but they've all had an educational focus. Um, and of course, once I recovered from cancer, just as you're interviewing me now for a podcast to perhaps bring some awareness and information to people about head and neck cancer and how to know if you've got it and where to get quick treatment, how to recover. Um, I, I've also become very involved in patient and family education, but also multidisciplinary clinical education about head and neck cancer because it's just a lot of people don't know anything about it and it's to the disadvantage of those people like you and I who've had the misery of actually having this condition. Hmm. So I guess, yeah, it's a very interesting, that kind of whole idea. It's like you're living and breathing the um, the kind of value of education publicly, you know, to kind of uh, get the word out or, you know, spread. Very, the very much so. So what, I'm just wondering when you were doing your adult um, education, what sort of topics were you kind of exploring with them? Or oh, you guys have uh, a wide range. Uh, do, do you mean about cancer or before cancer? Before cancer, I guess. I guess also, I take your um, 
that note that it's the before cancer kind of idea and then after. But so, yeah, just for the moment, if that's all right. Of course. Look, uh, when I say adult, adult education, that's how I view uh, if I had to bring a coherence to my very diverse working life, it would be to say that I talk for a living and I get other people talking because I do a lot of interviewing rather than me standing and delivering. So I get people talking and I um, help people to discuss incredibly complex topics in comprehensible ways. What what were one of those complex uh, topics? What's the most complex? Apart from head and neck cancer. Oh, gee, that's an interesting question. Uh, Look, if I had to say that, I had, um, you know, I'm mainly referring to my time on uh, what's now called ABC Radio National, which is a national radio station and now a very much a podcast station as well. And there are shows on science, the law, the arts and so on. So when I, I've i worked, uh, for example, for a year on a program that was all about the arts and I got to interview people about the arts and what the topic of their work was. But I always tried to do interviews. I did a lot on legal education. I later got a law degree as well as an arts degree and I've, I've um, got a qualification how to teach people to read and write. So I really am committed to education at all levels. Um, but the, the topics are really varied. But if you if I... I always like people if they answer the question, so I'll try to answer your question, which is what was the most complicated. I had a job for about three years in a legal tribunal, which was then called the Guardianship Board. But basically my job was to teach, it was all about what they call adult guardianship. So if we have a car accident and get a brain injury and can no longer make decisions, and there are important decisions to be made, like how to manage our money or where to live or what sort of medical treatment to get, or if uh, uh, I'm born with an intellectual disability and I become an adult and and there are big decisions to be made, Um, if I have a stroke (laughs) um, and uh, and suddenly can't speak or perhaps I'm cognitively impaired, or even, to be honest with you, I now know people who've had um, metastases into their brain. So they've had a head and neck cancer, but they've got secondary cancers in their brain that's affected their cognitive. So there's a whole lot of ways. Diminished, adult, diminished capacity. Diminished capacity. And so my job was to talk to social workers in hospital, to parents of adult children with um, intellectual disability, to talk to partners of people whose partner had had a terrible accident and a head injury about what their legal rights were and when it was sometimes necessary to get a special order, a guardianship order, a financial management order, or indeed if ideally um, everyone listening to this would have an enduring power of attorney. It's something you can do with a solicitor to say, if anything happens to me, this is the person I trust to make my financial decisions and an enduring guardianship order. So you can actually declare with a solicitor if I can't decide where to, what medical treatment to have or, or where to live, uh, this person is empowered to do it. And it's a really good thing to do because we never know when we're going to have an accident or get a health condition. And that's certainly true as someone who had the shock of a di- cancer diagnosis. You know that life can indeed change overnight. So the answer to your question is that was some of the hardest communication work I ever did. And the main reason is because who wants to think about it? 
No one wants to think, oh, my God, I could have a stroke. I could fall over and bang my head on the pavement. I I could have a child that has an intellectual disability. People want to put their fingers in their ears and go, they don't want to listen. And so finding ways to say, no, please listen. What were those ways? What were some of those ways that you, you... Well, the main way is personal stories. And obviously I'm partly raising this, Mark, because you and I as as head of neck cancer, I say patients rather than survivors because we never know about recurrence and and some people aren't lucky to survive. So I've experienced a diagnosis with all the challenges that brings is how I think about it. So I I still think of myself as a head and neck cancer patient who's been lucky enough uh, to make it to 10 years since treatment. Um, but, you know, it's a similar topic. Nobody wants to know about head and neck cancer because the treatments are very challenging. Uh, the results, the side effects can be very tough. The side effects can get worse as we uh, get older. Uh, and um, uh, it's a hard topic. And so stories, let me introduce you to so-and-so and here's how they found out that something was wrong with their throat. And even though they didn't smoke or drink, that was me, hadn't drunk alcohol or smoked tobacco for over 35 years, I was told I had a throat cancer. And uh, that can perhaps draw someone in to want to learn more about, well, how did you know you had a problem and how could you get cancer? And you talk about the human papillomavirus, which you're probably familiar with. Oh, I'm very familiar with that one, yes. Um. So just to round off this first little segment, what, you know, like um, I guess it's kind of did you get people on the show that were just sort of like they were they calling in or were you kind of blasting oh. information out or okay. how did you kind of like I guess this touches on on a bit of learning design even. If you've got a really big message and it's kind of tricky or people want to put their fingers in their ears and they're not engaging – how do you sort of prepare for, and I guess it's kind of, you know, something like the Enduring Guardian or another another kind of tricky topic. Yeah. How do you sort of prepare yourself? Well, look, I'll just quickly say I was a, a radio broadcaster on the ABC and a TV presenter for over 25 years. So I've had different audiences and different strategies. But let me answer your question with the, the last big program I was on, which was called Life Made Us on ABC Radio National, and it's still on. Uh, and I job shared for um, uh, three years with a woman called Geraldine Doog, a wonderful broadcaster. I'm familiar well. with that name, yeah. yes. And uh, and uh, and then a couple of years alone. And how we covered a whole range of sensitive topics was the way that I think we did it best was the Friday talkback. So this is national radio. We have a topic. So one might be, can you, uh, if you don't want to be gay, uh, you don't want to be a homosexual, can you change your sexuality? We did a talkback on that. And we had a two, uh, um, the, 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 the way we dealt with sensitive topics like that is you'd have two experts and someone with lived experience. And the two experts would be different kinds of experts. And over the uh, 55 minutes of the program, you would move between the experts, the person with lived experience, and taking calls, and you would mix them all up. So, yes, you had a plan, you had an aim, you had key issues you wanted to 
um, cover. But the most important thing was you had constant engagement with everyday people with different levels of knowledge and education. So it was lively and entertaining. And the one other thing I'll always say is no matter how tough the topic is, I always try to bring optimism and hope and empathy. Um, And that's the same approach I try to take in my work about head and neck cancer because people want hope. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. In 2013, I was diagnosed with stage four oropharyngeal cancer, which was cancer in my tonsils, tongue and throat. So that's what we're basically talking about. And I was treated with 33 sessions of radiation and weekly chemotherapy, It had very severe side effects, which I uh, gradually recovered from with the help of a multidisciplinary team, which just means doctors, nurses and allied health. So in our world, speech pathologists, people who help you to swallow and speak and regain speech, and dietitians, people who help you to continue to take in nutrition even when you've lost the capacity to swallow either completely or to a very significant degree were crucial, but I actually think the nurse was critical too in terms of uh, helping me to coordinate care and to um, cope emotionally. But if I go back to the beginning, which is what you want, how did I find out that something freaky was going on? Well, I went for um, to my general practitioner probably something in the order of six or seven times over a I don't know exactly, but it'd be something like eight to 10 months saying that something's wrong. I, I, I've got a persistent sore throat, but I'm not sick. I'm just not sick, but I've got this really sore throat. I keep taking um, uh, Panadol. In fact, I've still, I still take them. Uh, Panadol, rapidly soluble. Oh, yes. I, I'm familiar with those, the maximum <laughs> dose of those. Yes. Because <laughs> I had a sore throat, and I, but I wasn't sick. I, didn't, I wasn't sick. And I had an earache. It was like someone had got a bit of wood. That's what I used to say. It's like a wood and they've jammed it in my left ear and oh, I don't know what it is. And I had two little lumps on my neck. Now, what they actually had were the classic symptoms of oropharyngeal cancer, tonsils, tongue and throat. The oropharynx is a bit of your throat. But the, the critical thing is it's so deep down that if you open your mouth and the doctor looks in, they can't see a thing. In order to discover if there's a tumour there, you need a referral to an ear, nose and throat doctor and they have they squirt anaesthesia into your nostril and they put a tube down with a little camera on it and my uh, ear, nose and throat doctor had a, like a TV screen in the room and he I could look up, up at it, he'd take a film and, and it, this doesn't hurt, it's, it feels unusual but it doesn't hurt and you get you have to make funny little sounds and do things that he asks you to do and then he shows you the film and and that can show you what's deep down in your throat, around what's called the vocal folds. So there's a deep part where these two little folds bang together and that's how speech happens. And um, you, So if you don't get that referral to the ear, nose and throat doctor, you can't get an oropharyngeal or throat cancer diagnosis. There are other sorts of head and neck cancers, but I'll just talk about my one, which is... Uh, oh. 
So do you want to ask me a question? Oh, yeah. What? What? How long? Uh, like from the the moment that you you had a few kind of visits to your GP, but then you eventually saw your ear, nose, and throat specialist. So what sort of time frame was that? It was something like eight months. But the critical thing to say is um, that my GP never referred me. Um, uh, 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 she came up with a whole range of different possibilities. Uh, for what could be causing this, but she never referred me to an ear, nose and throat doctor. And why this is critical is that this is common. Similarly, another way, uh, another pathway, as it's called, of how an oropharyngeal cancer patient can get to the ear, nose and throat surgeon, which is the critical step to getting diagnosed, is through your dentist. And one of the things that uh, the uh, Head and Neck Cancer Australia, which is a charity education organisation, I was their first ambassador, uh, what they're doing is some really good work to educate general practitioners and dentists to, to get patients with these sorts of symptoms quick, smart, to an ear, nose and throat doctor. So I believe I would be dead if I hadn't written a personal letter to an ear, nose and throat doctor. I, I, as I said, I'm a radio wow. broadcaster uh, and I still do interviewing kind of work. And um, I had previously had contact with an ear, nose and throat surgeon uh, at uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and so I wrote him a personal letter and I said my GP has I don't have a referral but um something's wrong and I wrote what I had well he saw me immediately um I was uh, he put the little tube down and there was a huge tumor down my throat um which I saw and what a ch- cancer is just the overproduction of cells, the uncontrolled reproduction of cells. Mm. So I just looked, saw this big lumpy excess amount of skin, really, a big lumpy thing in my throat. And, um, you know, I look back and realise if I hadn't written that letter, I might not be alive. You know, he, I was in treatment um, within a fortnight from that wow. moment. You do strike me as being quite self-directed. <laughs> like, and it's in this case, you needed to be self-directed, write that letter, get things moving. You obviously, well, you know, I'm assuming you you knew something was up and you needed it to be investigated, so you took action. Look, Mark, what I'd say to that is um, both as a journalist, because as a journalist on a show like Life Matters, which was, you know, a, a, a morning weekday program, it was very much about health and education and caring for the elderly, caring for children. It, it was really the program that used to be the women's hour, but it had become more, more, more men and women these days because the world has changed. But my point is I have done interviews on ca- every sort of cancer and other health conditions for literally years as a journalist. And I think it's very common in cancer, but it's not just cancer, that there's a struggle to get a diagnosis. You know, there's often a journey to a diagnosis. In head and neck cancer, it's a very common thing to have a big delay until diagnosis because there isn't a screening for it. And this is another important point for people hearing about this for the first time. As a woman, I've had a pap smear for cervical screening regularly for years as a an Australian woman, I've had a breast cancer screening regularly for years and still do. Uh, there is no screening test for head and neck cancer. In other words, there's no easy, quick way. You've got to get to a medical specialist who's an ear, nose and throat doctor 
and you he he or she has got to put one of these things down your nose and have a look. So that is an effective barrier to diagnosis. So um, I've I through my ten years since treatment, I've had a lot of contact with head and neck cancer patients. My story is not unusual. What's unusual is that I I contacted someone directly. That's pretty unusual. And then I guess what and then what happened? What was the next kind of bit on your, you know, I'm assuming you had surgery or how did No, it- I didn't. I only had a biopsy. If I could just say the day before I was diagnosed, I I emceed a major um symposium at Parliament House in Canberra for the then Health Minister, Tanya Plibersek. So this is 2013. The next day, I'm told I've got cancer after the thing goes down. 48 hours later, I had a biopsy. So that was um, general anaesthesia and going down through my throat to take out a lump of tissue to confirm the diagnosis. And I had what was called a... um, traumatic intubation. So that's the tube that they put into and that, that gives you anesthesia. And uh, it turned out I, I'm very, I'm I'm small. I'm five foot two and I'm quite a small person. And I am very small and I, I need a pediatric or children's tube. And I didn't. I had an adult one. Why I mention this is I couldn't speak when I woke up. I, they damaged my vocal cords. So I went from being a facilitator at Parliament House to having no speech in 48 hours with a life-threatening diagnosis. So the first impact was an extraordinary psychological shock. Um, So then uh, you have a a, a myriad of tests, um, uh, all sorts of tests. My surgeon and the man who was to be my radiation oncologist were going to a conference in Germany. So they asked me, can you, do you mind if you miss the normal inductions? We know what needs to happen to you. We won't put you through the normal uh, team process uh, because we, it's very advanced. You're stage four. There's only four stages. I didn't even know that. And um, we want to get you into treatment as soon as possible. I'd mentioned I come from a medical family and I'd heard doctors sometimes do that with patients. Say, can we just fast track you? I said, yeah. Please do. I want to live. You know? Please do. I, 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 I was prepared to do anything they said. It was uh, my whole attitude was how high, jump how high. I, I totally was committed to the Western model of medicine. I knew I was in big trouble, right? When I saw my radiation oncologist, he, he diagnosed me. He said, um, uh, I said, how, what's my chances of survival? He said, and he said in a, in a really like it was good news, he said, you've got an 80% chance of survival. And, and it, like he said, like it was good news because I now know it was good news. Many cancers have a lower um, survival rate. I, I hadn't smoked up tobacco for 35 years. I hadn't drunk alcohol at all for 35 years. In the past, head and neck cancer, oropharyngeal cancer, throat cancer was predominantly caused by tobacco and alcohol. Mine was caused by the human papillomavirus, a sexually transmitted virus that vast majority of the population have at some point in their life. There's many different viruses. Only a few of them cause cancer and very few people get cancer from this. But I drew the short straw. So, I, 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 But the good news about HPV is that you have a higher chance of survival. But anyway, going back to my radiation man, I said, 80%, I'm hopeless at maths. What does that mean? And he said, it means, Julie, there's 10 people in the room, eight live and two don't. Now, again, he said that, that like that was good news and, frankly, it didn't feel like 
<laughs> and then he said, but to, I, I said, to put it another way, I expect you to live, but I won't be surprised if you don't. I'm now starting to feel fairly queasy. And then he said, but look, you're in with a good chance. You're overweight. I had no idea what he meant. And I'll explain to your audience in a minute what he meant. And then he pointed to my partner, Melissa, sitting beside me, who was sobbing and said, and you've got social support, <laughs> which is a very funny way to refer to your partner. But there, I was an outpatient for my 33 sessions of radiation and weekly chemo, and most of us are unless we get into some sort of trouble. So we rely heavily on family and friends to support us through a gruelling treatment which has a dramatic effect. Um, we lo I lost 20 kilograms in six weeks because it affects our swallowing. I was lucky that I didn't have to have tube feeding. Uh, some people get a tube down their nose, that liquid food goes down, a nasogastric tube. Some people have a tube surgically inserted through their tummy uh, and uh, 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 food goes in through that tube straight into the stomach. I had an anxi deep anxiety about both those things and so I managed to keep swallowing liquid food, but it was a real struggle. And you get a, uh, radiation is essentially a burning thing. So um, I got, had a lot of swelling and what could have been severe pain inside my mouth, but I had fantastic pain management. Um, but my one other quick thing I'll say about the treatment was we have to wear a rigid plastic mask. They call it thermoplastic, but you know, a mask that they make to fit over your head and my upper shoulders and they click you down onto a flat bed and then they leave you alone in my time. This is 10 years ago. It might be quicker now. I was alone in that room for 20 minutes while a large radiation machine fires the radiation beam from different angles into your tumour. You don't feel anything, but you hear something. And I um, found the mask traumatic. I had never thought that I was uh, claustrophobic. Uh, but I had never had a life-threatening illness and been clicked tightly down by the head. I found it seriously traumatic, and I have spent a lot of my uh, life since uh, developing educational materials uh, to try and ha have no person ever go through the same level of um, traumatic ignorance that I did. In summary, uh, since the end of those 33 sessions of radiation and the weekly chemo, I've had a prolonged period of being monitored by a multidisciplinary team. So they checked me every three months for about 18 months, then every six months, and then every, and then a longer period. So I was checked constantly and with different kinds of support up until five years, and then you're handed back uh, to your general practitioner for support. And, um, you know, I would say that one of the most important things for me in that 10 years has been to have contact with fellow head and neck cancer survivors and to partner with doctors, nurses, allied health to make videos about every aspect of treatment, diagnosis, treatment and recovery. And that has given meaning to my suffering. I've travelled internationally. I'm travelling again this year to a big conference in San Diego in the USA, but I've mainly made videos and also podcasts with Cancer Council, so all about different kinds of cancer. But I think um, having contact with fellow patients and helping future, current and future patients has really helped me psychologically.
You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we're in pretty, um, you know, potentially confronting territory. And, you know, as anyone with any sort of illness or obstacle in life, but, I mean, what are there positives? Have you experienced a positive? And what if so, what are they? What is it? What are the positives in your experience? Look, uh, the key positive is the connection, the 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 impact of connection with fellow patients, family members, and caring empathic clinicians who want to improve the experience for future head and neck cancer patients. You know, you don't have to be a person of faith. There's a quote, to, to appreciate a quote out of the New Testament, which I think is Jesus, but pretty sure it was Jesus, but I'm not going down a religious path. I just want to say something. It, 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 it was said in the New Testament, when two or three people are gathered in my name, I am with you, right? Now, why that's, and, and that is the idea that there's some power unleashed when two or three people gather together. Now, interestingly, completely separate from Jesus, but you do remember he was in the Roman Empire. There was a law in the Roman Empire uh, which forbade two or three people gathering together for certain purposes that could be critical of the emperor. And so what am I trying to say? There is an acknowledgement both in the secular world or even the pagan world and in the faith world that when people gather together for a common purpose, something is unleashed. And indeed the whole self-help movement in relation to other health problems is based on that idea that there is some force greater than ourselves that can comfort us and help us if we gather together with people who've been through the same thing. So the RSL for Veterans of War, uh, Breast Cancer Network Australia for women who've had breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer as a, as a, a national group, uh, lung cancer, but also um, uh, other illnesses have special non-government organisations who all develop organization information meetings and they go to conferences why because there's something about coming together unleashes a force so i'm sorry i had to have cancer to have this experience i'm not suggesting having cancer i think i had ways of finding this force as a as a woman in women's liberation and so on when i was growing up banding together to make life more equal for women and girls but but it, I got uh, dealt the hand of a really tough cancer. And it has been fantastic to meet people like a woman called Professor Sandra Turner, who's a radiation oncologist working in Western Sydney. And with others, she formed uh, an advocacy group called uh, the Targeting Cancer Campaign with other radiation oncologists. They're the doctors who do radiation. It's not just about head and neck cancer. But when she heard I'd had head and neck cancer and I was in the media at that time, she came and saw me and said, will you become an ambassador for this campaign so we can inform the Australian population about the value of radiation therapy? And I said, sure, I will. If you help me find out what we can do to improve the education head and neck cancer patients get 
before they have the mask. Because I went into that bunker and was clicked down with a mask. I'd never seen a bunker. I'd never seen a radiation therapy machine or LINAC, as they call linear accelerator. And I, I had seen the mask, but I didn't understand what was going to happen. And I cried my eyes out after that first of 33 sessions in the toilet at the hospital. And I haven't cried since, Mark. I froze. I have been emotionally traumatized by that. And so I said, you help me to educate people about the mask and I'll help you to educate people about radiation. Well, 10 years later, Sandra and I have made many videos. Some of them are available on the Medical College website. Um, we've spoken at conferences. I interviewed her only a few weeks ago for some videos that will be distributed nationally. And that's just one example. I've worked with uh, a, a man called uh, Chris Curtis and Marty, uh, uh, up, uh, so a man in Blackpool in England, a man in Brisbane in Queensland, and we produced um, uh, 30,000 booklets full of stories about recovery from head and neck cancer, medical and allied health and nursing information, and we mailed them directly uh, to head and neck cancer teams all over Australia and New Zealand. We, I've subsequently made literally scores of videos and, and it sounds like busy work, but it's not just busy work. I, I've I've met the best of people, people who will do voluntary work to help others. And um, it's just a, a, a um, how can I put it? It's they're great people. It's uplifting and it's encouraging. But I'm telling you this, Mark. But you're interviewing me for exactly the same reason, aren't you? You've had a tough cancer and you want to find some positive things out of it. Oh, well, yeah, this whole experience is chatting to you is a, definitely a positive. Um, I guess I'm just kind of interested in that whole concept of story, personal story, because, um, yeah, it is. I When you were speaking a few minutes ago about, you know, that having a chat with people gathering, you know, just so, it's so profoundly valuable and yet it's often just dismissed or overlooked as not being anything or... I don't know. Like it's. I think health professionals are afraid of the of the concern. They're worried about risk associated with patients and family just gathering together without supervision. I think both have an important role to play, and I think they underestimate the capacity of people who've uh, everyday people who've had cancer to also have a sense of responsibility to do no harm and to support each other. But if I, but there is something mysterious about the comfort. When I sit beside someone else who's worn the mask. We're doing that electronically now. Exactly, mate. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know, we can tell the listeners that when you first told me you'd had the same cancer and worn the mask. I reached out through yeah, the we did. We had that kind of. And the I, camera. I wanted to touch you. I'll tell you a story. I was once emceeing a big cancer conference because I still do paid work related to cancer as well as my voluntary work because I'm a professional MC now. And uh, I, I was emceeing a big conference at a cancer conference in Brisbane, and there it was all actually about um, a different kind of cancer, but a woman ovarian cancer, which has a very very difficult. Uh, and lower survival rate than the cancer we've had. And um, I, I went up and after the job was done, there was a woman who'd asked a question and she'd revealed that she had stage four ovarian cancer and the prognosis wasn't good. 
And when it was all over and everyone's leaving, I just went up and sat beside her and I said, hi, you know, and she said, hi. And we just sat together. I think we even held hands briefly and we didn't even speak. We had different cancers. We had different chances of survival. Um, but we had the deepest empathy for each other. I couldn't cry. She did cry, but I, as I mentioned, have been frozen. Um, but I can't put into words the comfort we gave each other. And then I said, oh, I've got to go and get a plane. And she said, I've got to go home to the kids. <laughs> we gave each other a hug. Um, now, I've had many, many, many experiences like that, and they've helped me recover. Yeah, I guess that folds into this idea of teaching and having that as a contact, connection with other people, but then to have to elevate, if that's the word, or amplify, you've sort of got, uh, you know, the ability to communicate um, as personal stories or even just information to a group. I'm not sure where I'm leading with all that. <laughs> Could I say something? Yes. <laughs> I'll do it as if I'm just coming in again on myself, okay? You know, there's one thing I'd love to say about the value of personal stories in health advocacy. That's both not just to support fellow patients and family, but to actually try to improve the system. Because once, and, that, my, and my comment is this, I Remember I said I really believe in the Western model of care. I believe in research. I believe in randomised controlled trials. This is the highest level of evidence. So when they're working out how much radiation to give me or when they're working out how much chemotherapy to give me and where, and uh, how frequently and when they're working out whether to operate on me or not, I want them to have the best possible evidence. But when I'm communicating that best evidence to fellow patients of family, many of whom may not have gone to university, may have different levels of education, they may be from multicultural communities, Aboriginal communities, not have English as a first language, it cannot be communicated in the way doctors and other professionals talk to each other because too many people don't get it. So what I try to specialise in as, a, as an advocate is to under, work with clinicians who are leaders in their field to identify what are the most important messages to help recovery and treatment and the latest evidence put into the simplest language possible through an interview that I do. And then together we identify patients and family who've got stories that illustrate the key messages from the research. So they're not just random stories, they're curated and selected stories to reinforce the key messages of the research. And then those stories can be used to um, help people who are less educated or less familiar. So people who talk use the expression health literacy, who are, who are less literate than someone like me who's grown up with doctors in the family, um, to understand what really matters. So that's how I try to use stories. It's in partnership with articulate, evidence-based clinicians who can speak in plain English. Look, I think what I'd like to say finally is that if you have a persistent concern about some symptoms in your body, you think something's not quite right. Remember I had 
a sore throat, but I wasn't sick. Why did I have a sore throat? I had an earache that just wouldn't go away. I had little lumps. Why were they there? And my GP kept reassuring me, but I just had a feeling in my waters that something was wrong. And sometimes we might feel about a sick child or a sick partner. Trust your instincts. Get second opinions. Get third opinions. So number one is if you're worried about something, particularly if you're a man where men are often slower to go, for the sake of those who love you, go to a doctor. And if that doctor isn't helping, go to another doctor and another doctor. Get a diagnosis. And my second point is if you're particularly interested in head and neck cancers, and they can be all sorts, they can be in the jaw and in the mouth and deep down in the throat, there's all different sorts. There's a a website called Head and Neck Cancer Australia, Head and Neck Cancer Australia. I would recommend you go there. There's many links. Don't go too far on Dr. Google with head and neck cancer because some of us are left very damaged after our treatment and it's very frightening. Um, uh, But Head and Neck Cancer Australia is an uh, evidence-based and constantly updated website that I would strongly recommend. And then finally, I would say, if you have had head and neck cancer, unfortunately, when Medicare was developed in Australia, so this is access to uh, healthcare regardless of capacity to pay. Now, we know there is still a gap there for many of us, but compared to many nations of the world, we do have access to healthcare. But the mouth for dental purposes was not included in Medicare. And that has had a devastating effect uh, for many head and neck cancer patients. We don't have time to talk about it now. Uh, And there is information about all this on Head and Neck Cancer Australia. But if you happen to be listening to this and someone has just been diagnosed, it's terribly important to go to a dentist who knows about head and neck cancer so you get good uh, preparation before radiation in particular. And even if you've had treatment but you're not having a follow-up with dentist, you need to find a dentist who has in their form that you fill in when you become their patient, have you had radiation? In other words, they know that radiation has a long-term impact on the mouth and we need special dental assistance for the rest of our lives. I've spent a lot of money on dentistry um, and I feel very much for people who can't afford private dentistry but many uh, hospitals do have public dentistry. You need to get with someone who understands the special needs of head and neck cancer patients. You know, the more you do, the better. And we just, you know, you'll save lives by doing this. It's as simple as that. Someone will hear this and it'll save their life. In this episode, I chatted with Julie McCrossan. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to Julie's website and links to various cancer-related resources, including Head and Neck Cancer Australia and Cancer Council Podcasts, which are hosted by Julie. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.